It's Wednesday, August 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After a report indicating he harassed 11 women, an ongoing impeachment probe, and numerous calls for him to step down, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that he will resign effective in 14 days. Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul will take over and become the first female governor of New York. Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post, joins us for the resignation and a look at some of the other corruption in New York state politics. Next, the Senate finally passed a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill with a vote of 69 to 30. 19 Republicans joined Democrats to push the plan through, and it will now move to the House, where progressives say it doesn't go far enough. The Senate now moves on to debate a $3.5 trillion package that is expected to pass without any Republican support. Tanya Snyder, transportation reporter at Politico, joins us for more. Finally, children are going back to school and there is still chaos and confusion over masks. We are in the sophomore year of COVID and there is still no consensus on how to keep students and teachers safe. Some school districts across the country are mandating mask wearing and defying state orders to do so. Dan Goldberg, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for the back to school mess. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I take full responsibility for my actions. I have been too familiar with people. Joining us now is Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Philip. Of course. On Tuesday, we finally got word from New York Governor Andrew Cuomo that he is going to resign. This is after the New York State Attorney General Letitia James put out a report saying that he harassed 11 women. There was already a looming impeachment investigation happening against him. One of his longtime aides had resigned. Everything really seemed to be against him. And for you know the week between when the report came out and the resignation, uh, he seemed pretty defiant, like he wasn't going to do it. But then we finally got word from him that he was. So some interesting news out of New York and, and Governor Andrew Cuomo. I mean, it was sort of surprising just because it's not really, I mean, for all of the bluster that Cuomo has about, you know, what kind of a fighter he is and so on and so forth. I mean, he really is a pretty pugnacious guy. And so it really, I think it was probably safe to assume that he would fight this more than he actually did, that he didn't came to something of a surprise. You know, I mean, he went down fighting. He actually, his announcement was preceded by a lengthy press conference from his personal attorney, who uh, once again tried to undercut some of the allegations against him. And then in his speech itself, he similarly tried to attack the entire thing as being political. But then he ended up stepping away. And so New York in two weeks time will have a new governor. He said he didn't want to waste energy on distractions. And that's what government shouldn't be doing. That's why he decided to step down. It's a curious decision. He's been pretty good at managing the New York State Assembly and Senate to do what he wants, given the constraints of obviously partisanship and uh, over the course of his uh, governorship, uh, I mean, there have been some really weird moments <laughs> over the course of the time that he's been chief executive, including his sort of tacitly supporting Republican control of the state Senate for a while because it gave him more leverage as governor. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways in which he really worked the New York state political system to his advantage. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that for a lot of people have been watching for a long time, there was sort of this assumption that he might try and figure out a way to wriggle out of this as well. And I think that that, to some extent, is a sign of how damaging he understood this to be, which, to be very clear, it was very damaging. Right. You know, he didn't have good responses for a lot of the allegations made against him. 
So in two weeks, he'll be gone. He's going to be replaced by Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, who will be New York's first female governor in just an interesting set of circumstances, right? He gets ousted because of uh, harassing women and then enters the first female governor. What do we know about her? Uh, You mentioned in one of your pieces that just like many other lieutenant governors, people don't know much about them. So Kathy Hochul, I'm I'm actually from Rochester, which is in western New York, and she's from Buffalo. So there's sort of an affinity that I'm very excited. There's a western New Yorker who's going to be running the state here after all. But Kathy Hochul is a relatively conservative Democrat. She actually first made her name in state politics by being a more moderate sort of Democrat. Uh, one of the reasons that Cuomo actually tapped to be as lieutenant governor running mate was because she wasn't hard left, because she was a more moderate choice. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the lieutenant governor in the state of New York doesn't do a whole lot. So it'll be sort of interesting to see how her politics uh, look once she actually steps into that role. You know, I think it's really important to note that the history of recent governors and lieutenant governors in the state is really grim. There's a lot of corruption in New York state politics. And I think one of the things that there should be some pressure on Hochul to actually address is that sort of corruption. Cuomo himself pledged to address it and then ended up having corruption allegations about his handling of the corruption investigation. So, I mean, that's just how New York is. But I think that will be one of her tests to figure out how to actually clean up uh, the mess that is New York state politics. Tell me a little bit more about some of that recent corruption we've seen in New York. You know, we had Elliot Spitzer. We had a bunch of people be all leading up into Cuomo. You know, that there was problems all throughout. I'll do it as quickly as I can. So Elliot Spitzer resigns after allegedly paying women. I guess it was confirmed paying women for sex. He had been the attorney general. One of the people who replaced him as attorney general was uh, Andrew Cuomo. The person who replaced Andrew Cuomo as attorney general was Eric Schneiderman, who resigned in the midst of Me Too for his behavior towards women. Spitzer, when he resigns, replaced by David Patterson. David Patterson had four lieutenant governors, all of whom were indicted for corruption or theft or embezzlement or fraud charges. Uh, his fifth one actually managed to stick around. Patterson himself won to seek re-election, but didn't because of corruption allegations. He ended up having a fine. And then, of course, he was replaced by Cuomo, who now is resigning in disgrace. That's literally the past three governors. <laughs> so, you know, this is, I mean, it's, you know, sorry, Illinois, but you've got competition. It's an inflection point right now, really. You know, things can change. But, uh, you know, I'm assuming a lot of the agenda that's been set by Cuomo would still remain, if it would seem like. Yeah, I mean, Cuomo did do a number of things that New Yorkers liked. I mean, he still does get pretty good marks on his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, honestly, before his speech today, I assume he was going to come out and make some sort of announcement about how the pandemic was getting worse and in order to try and scare people and just changing horses midstream. Obviously, that's not what happened. But, you know, there are things that Hochul will try and do to continue Cuomo's administration where he has been relatively successful and or gotten good marks. But again, it's a black box. You know, I mean, literally seven in 10 New Yorkers say they don't have an opinion of her. So she can really define herself. uh, And it'll be interesting to watch how she chooses to do that. Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. I'm glad it passed. I'm glad it's bipartisan, strongly so important to job creation and the rest. But it is not the totality of the vision of Joe Biden and the congressional Democrats. Joining us now is Tanya Snyder, transportation reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Tanya. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about the big win so far today for the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, $1 trillion. The Senate approved it with a vote of 69 to 30. So 
19 Republicans joined the Democrats to pass this in the Senate. The big thing about this, we call it the $1 trillion bill, but the key thing is it has $550 billion of new spending. So, Tanya, what did we see in the vote from the Senate on this? So, like you said, we did get 19 Republicans joining all of the Democrats to vote in favor of this bill. Several Republicans, including some who were part of the negotiations at the beginning and really in favor of the process, kind of dropped off toward the end because they didn't like that it wasn't fully paid for or felt that it was too big, had had some beef with it in the end. But that is a pretty significant bipartisan win for a major piece of legislation in the Senate and being followed already by a reconciliation bill, which is going to move forward with zero Republican votes that that is already being taken up in the Senate. For the bill that was passed by the Senate, that's going to go on to the House, which poses a couple of problems there. You know, a lot of uh, the progressive wing has said that they might not support it unless the Senate passes the other $3.5 trillion package first. They want more things in it. So so it's going to be a tough sell in the House still, it seems like. Democrats across the administration, the Senate, the House, all want to see this reconciliation bill passed. That means that they're going to need to get it passed. Their two most conservative senators, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. So they will, again, probably need to tame their wildest dreams, but they are almost certainly going to pass some reconciliation bill, and that will meet Nancy Pelosi's requirement for taking up the bipartisan plan. Now, there was also a House infrastructure bill that people in the House had worked on for a long time and and that the House passed early in July. And it seems that Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer are planning to just completely sideline that and just take up the Senate bill instead. We talk a lot about bipartisanship, and uh, you noted in one of your articles about all of this is that infrastructure is one of those things where the bipartisan aspect of things should come easy. You know, everybody gets to take dollars home to their states and and, and build up the infrastructure, improve things. But you noted in the article that, uh, you know, for a long time, you know, infrastructure hasn't really been that bipartisan. There's been a lot of conversations, a lot of debate on what does constitute infrastructure, and that's kind of shown up in the in the debate so far with all of this stuff? Back when there were earmarks the first time and earmarks were banned in 2011, it was easier to get bipartisan agreement because everyone would get something to bring home to their district. And that was no longer possible when earmarks were banned. Now, Democrats have tried to bring earmarks back, not just because they want to kind of grease the skids for passing big bills like this, but there is actually a, a, a just a belief and a, a principle that Congress and not just quote-unquote unelected bureaucrats in Washington should make decisions about where these transportation dollars go. But you're absolutely right. There are lots of ideological and partisan divides when it comes to infrastructure. A big one is highways and transit. Rural interests are interested in big highways and roads, and people in urban areas are often more interested in modes of transportation that ease congestion. And also liberals are more interested in modes of transportation that reduce carbon emissions. And all of that brings us to mass transit, walking, and biking. 
So whether federal funds should be used for transit, walking, and biking is an evergreen partisan issue. And it's just how big bills should be when it comes to taxes and spending and how to raise revenues, what's fair, what's regressive. All of those are always ideological issues, and there are always big fights between Democrats and Republicans. The $1 trillion bill, that's going to be mostly paid by shifting money around from COVID relief money, things like that. But the $3.5 trillion bill, the second package, that's going to be obviously the tougher sell that we've been talking about, right? That's going to be paid for by higher taxes on uh, corporations and the wealthy. And that's why it's a no-go with Republicans. And to be clear, even the bipartisan bill was only about half paid for with this kind of grab bag of budgetary offsets. Like you mentioned, the Congressional Budget Office was not really convinced by the list that senators had put together of ways that they said the bill would be paid for or have that spending offset. So really, both bills are not fully paid for. And that's something that it seems that Congress has just gotten a little bit used to, especially in the wake of all of these COVID relief bills, when they've had to pass really big pieces of legislation with really big price tags really quickly and not worry too much about the pay-fors. Tanya Snyder, transportation reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We need 100% of the people in our public schools wearing masks at all times. This is the best way that we can keep our children and our staff and teachers safe. Joining us now is Dan Goldberg, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about back to school. There's chaos and confusion all over the place. You know, after going through a whole year of closures, shutdowns, mask wearing, all this other stuff, we're still in the same boat. And uh, it really doesn't seem like anybody has a clear path for how to get back to school this time around. Dan, tell us what we're seeing out there, because everybody seems to be pretty frustrated with uh, the current situation. That's absolutely right. We're in the same boat in many ways. What is new, what is a wrinkle this year is the Delta variant, which is a much more contagious strain of coronavirus than we saw last year. And frankly, it's something that most principals uh, and superintendents wasn't really on their radar when school ended in the spring. So for many people, they thought, okay, now that the vaccine is here, we're going to have a more normal school year. But that Delta variant has really upended plans across the country. And you're seeing that now as school district after school district changes its mask policy, changes its screening policy. And in some cases, a couple of districts have already had to shut down. The politics of it has uh, figures into it so much. There's a number of states who have uh, banned you know, masks at schools. There's a bunch of school districts that are going against it saying, well, we're going to do it anyways. You know, so the politics of it plays an important part as well. Yeah. And in that sense, a lot of that does look a lot like what we saw last year. I mean, masks and mask wearing are as controversial as ever. Certainly mandating a vaccine for those over 12 years old or teachers is one of the most controversial policies that you can bring about. And what we're seeing is the same things that are controversial for employers are controversial for principals. You spoke to a, a number of principals, uh, superintendents and all that. How are they feeling? What, what's their plan going forward? Uh, you know, obviously, they're waiting for that guidance from school officials and all that, uh, and, you know, and, and as I mentioned, the politics of it. But some of them are saying they feel more lost than they did the first time around. Most of them understand that Delta's coming. And it's going to infect students or teachers or both. Most of them feel like they have limited tools in the toolkit. 
And in some ways, it is worse than last year because masks have become so much more controversial, because opinions around whether coronavirus is serious or not have hardened so much more so than they were at this time last year. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's one of the things that we always go back to, right? Uh, children, younger people are often spared the most severe symptoms of the disease, which is amazing, but they can still get it and they can still transmit it. And, you know, that's where the tough balance is, right? Just because they can get it and they don't get as sick, you know, the outbreak can happen with teachers and other school administrators and they can get severely ill. So there's a couple points there. I mean, you raise a very good point. Obviously, we know so far children do not get as uh, sick as some of uh, adults, especially immunocompromised adults. But what every principal and superintendent has to consider is if the odds are one in a million, are they the one? And do you want that on your conscience? And more uh, to the point is, even if they don't get very sick, you may still have to quarantine a class. You may still lose your teacher, which means you have to uh, go to a hybrid model or go to remote learning. And that has ripple effects across society, right? I mean, if you go to a remote learning, the parents have to stay home. If the parents have to stay home, they can't go to work. And so the economic consequences of a surging caseload are enormous. Give us a few examples of what some school districts are already doing. As you mentioned earlier, some have already canceled some classes. Some are saying they're going to do the remote learning again, at least to begin. So what are we seeing out there? There was a school district in, in Mississippi, I believe, that uh, told people they were had to shut down their middle school going remote. And that was three days after them saying that they had to shut down two high schools. There's a, a small school district in Arizona that is canceling classes for at least a week because they lost too many teachers, either because the teachers got infected themselves or had to care for people who did. I mean, right now, only about 10 percent of the country's schools are open. The weather is still warm. People aren't yet really crammed together inside. This is just the beginning. And if the vaccination rates don't pick up pretty sizably pretty quickly, it is likely we're going to see waves of infections across schools. Again, like you said, that doesn't mean kids are going to get very sick. Hopefully not. But it does mean you're going to start to see schools having to close or having to shut down for a couple of weeks. Some of these schools risk some school funding. You know, if they go against certain mask mandates and whatnot, some of the penalties that they could face is that they just don't get as much money. So even that is a tough balancing act on what to do. I talked to a superintendent in Austin, Texas. You know, that's a pretty big town, obviously. I mean, Texas is one of the states, one of the Republican-led states, where the governor has said that no mask mandate is allowed for schools and no remote learning. Kids must be in class. And if the way Texas works is you get state funding based on the number of pupils in your school, but they're not counting virtual learning. So for every kid that takes Austin school district up on its virtual offering, which they're having for a K through five because they aren't eligible for the vaccine, that's a certain amount of money, Austin's budget. They're going to have to fund the school themselves. That's going to lead to an incredibly difficult conversation down the road. I mean, no money, no teachers. That's, yeah. that, you know, it's pretty simple. But the way they think of it is, what's the price for a kid's safety or a teacher's safety? Dan Goldberg, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>